0: Are, we, are, we are we are
1: the, the nonprofit, nonprofit collective, collective podcast. podcast
0: bringing together voices to explore and inspire the, the nonprofit news. world hi everyone and welcome to the nonprofit collective podcast i'm your co-host brianna williams we have a really cool episode for you. We were invited to the Nonprofit Management Grad Program at Columbia University to record a conversation between students in one of their marketing classes with the CEO of Giving Tuesday, Asha Curran. This was a very organic Conversation that was held after their class, and the professor Marsha Stepanik invited us to come in and partake in this conversation. Marsha also helped co-host a little bit of the conversation as well. This was such a wonderful opportunity for our podcast, and we really appreciate the support from Marsha and Asha and of the nonprofit management program at Columbia University. As always, we would love to hear from our listeners on what topics you're interested in us digging into deeper and or just any comments on the content that we have been putting out so far. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at NP Collective Pod. So we are here at Columbia University with Marsha Stepanek and we just had a really interesting conversation with Asha Curran from Giving Tuesday, which we'll be playing in a little bit that just focuses on being a young professional in the nonprofit industry and really how to move yourself up as a, a leader uh, and getting your opinions heard and your thoughts and everything that you know we value and what you are bringing to an organization and having that value be seen. Uh, but we did want to give Marsha some time to talk a little bit about the Columbia Nonprofit Management Program, as well as the class that she is uh, overseas and is the professor of the marketing, I guess, wing, you can say, of this program. So I'll pass it to Anna Sophia to ask a few questions. Yeah. So Marsha, I would love to hear more from you and your background. I just realized we've never really talked about this before, but what brought you to the space? Why communications and marketing for
2: nonprofits? Well, um, my training is as a journalist and it goes way back a little bit to the last century, but it was always founded on um, holding power and money accountable. And so my specialty in the area was always technology, new technology. It started Uh, way back uh, in 1990, 94 at Stanford, where I had actually started to study the shrinking middle class and economic disparity. And when I showed up on the Stanford campus, they said, are you crazy? You're in the middle of an e-commerce revolution. You're, you know, this thing called the internet. <laughs> so I changed completely my, my venue of study, created a menu of, of coursework for myself, which really gave me a, a grounding in not only how the world was changing, but really started to, uh, to plant some ideas into how behaviors uh, and technology would be changing our relationships, not only to our institutions, Uh, as these new tools would give us more personal agency, but um, changing our relationships with each other. Um, These issues about the haves and have-nots for digital, uh, the power that uh, digital communications uh, would be giving to people to speak up and have a voice for the first time was really very much in concert with my belief that we need to hold our ourselves and our institutions uh, accountable. I was invited to start up a magazine um, about philanthropy. I wanted to start a magazine that would really start looking at some of the new people and the new ideas and the new power of some of this agency uh, when related to different generations getting involved and not just to give money, but to give ideas and reinvent the way... We do things. Um, I was uh, asked uh, to um, start a technology program within the nonprofit sector studies uh, the Center for Philanthropy and Fundraising at NYU. And then I was uh, hired away. By Columbia to start a similar expansion of what had been predominantly a fundraising program and is now more of a nonprofit management program that looks at how communication and how marketing, not so much to tell people how great you are, but to really kind of build and listen. Uh, to authentic stories of change and what's missing. And so marketing communications is about listening and it's also about reframing um, and getting back to why we were founded to begin with. We take a stand on things. We solve social problems and now we need to, especially now, do it more brilliantly together.
0: Yeah. As an alumni of your class, the intro to marketing and communications for nonprofits, I can testify that, yes, that is very much the message and the vision that you share with us. And it's stuck with me uh, these past few years. So thank you. I would love it if you could introduce Asha for us and then tell us about why you wanted her to visit your class this semester.
2: Right. So Asha Curran uh, is uh, one of the most dynamic women in the field right now. Uh, She and her colleague, Henry Timms, are behind this innovation branding of a nonprofit, Uh, they started testing some new ideas at the 92nd Street Y that were very much about looking at how technology was changing us and those relationships and how technology could be leveraged to bring networks of people together. Um, Giving Tuesday, the founders of Giving Tuesday, which of course is very famous right now and it's starting to spread around the world. Uh, Asha has left the 92nd Street Y to bring nine, uh, Giving Tuesday with her and to not only expand it globally as a fundraising day, but also to expand it where it's not just about giving money, but it's also about giving change and many acts of connection around the world. And uh, Asha is very much at the forefront of innovation in the sector and in that way, Holding Power Accountable.
0: Uh, and Marsha has been a huge supporter of our podcast from the beginning. Uh, so thank you for your time tonight and allowing us to um, come into your classroom and record a little bit of what it's like to be a Columbia student.
2: All right, so let's get, let's go. Maybe if we start this conversation with um, some questions about culture. So I'd be interested in in maybe kicking off a conversation with Asha and maybe some of you and hearing from some of you about um, all these new ideas and from where you sit within the nonprofit organization, regardless of your level. So share some tales from the front lines of where you work. How are you all feeling about being heard inside your organizations and and where do you think um, those points of um, promise are uh, and conversely where do you think those barriers are that are most common to your experience as young people working in the nonprofit sector too?
0: Well I see a lot of people trying to embrace this new power I
2: still see people trying to grab on to the vestiges of old power. This is my responsibility, this is how we do it. They want to innovate, but at the same time, they have this fear of, we can't change the way we do it, this is how we do it. We have one golf outing, we have one gala, and this is this person handles the invite list, and this is always how we do it, and this is the way we do it, and it's successful.
1: And you wonder, if you keep doing the same thing, and you're
2: expecting different results, why? So how how can how can you help us convince people that they should embrace
1: new roles, new new ways of doing things? I mean, it's, it, the depressing answer is it just can't always, right? Like that. This is exactly why I said we have to start hiring nonprofit CEOs in a new model, because otherwise we're just going to continue to have this same. We have to keep working the same way because that's the way I've done it, and that's the way I've done it, and that's the way I've done it. And to do that, nonprofit boards are the ones who are gonna to have to start thinking more about new power leadership characteristics, and, and I do not mean that to be an age thing, right? I think it, it has nothing to do with age, really. If the, it, um, it doesn't take anybody of a specific generation to be able to think in ways that form a creative co- and lateral culture, um, but if we keep hiring old power CEOs because that's what we associate with power, right? then we're just going to have situations like that over and over and over again it also has it's also a mindset right it's a the 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 non-profit community suffers from scarcity mindset rather than abundance mindset right and we and we suffer from that for a reason because we because resources are scarce and that's why we have scarcity mindset but scarcity mindset is like you're scrabbling up a mountain Right, and you can barely keep a hold of it, and you just have to get to the top. And like a person in that situation doesn't have time to innovate or collaborate or think in new ways. They're scrambling to get to the top of that hill, and it's really hard, and it's not fun, and they're right, and and so like that, the, the combination of those factors just is toxic. And and I think that's why we did say like if you are in one of those situations, just hop. A theory about. Um, I, I don't have any data on this. I'd be interested to do some surveying or some research around it. Just anecdotally, or so just observationally, um, what I've seen is that people in the nonprofit world are much more likely to choose a job because they believe in that cause. And when you're choosing a job because you believe in the cause and that's your priority in choosing that job, then you're deprioritizing work culture and skill, skill building that's available to you and who you're going to work for. So I think too often we're choosing to work in toxic environments because we think that we're working for this cause that we really love. So when I get, you guys are, are all already established in this world, but when I'm talking to people who are young, just graduating from college, you know, I say, don't filter for that, not at first. When you when you are a leader, when you are a CEO, you can go change the world by running an environmental organization because that's your thing. But in the beginning, think about work culture. Who you are, you going to be able to learn from this person that you're reporting to? Are you going to be able to have lateral peer mentorship? Right? Well, not, you're not going to know all the answers to this right away. But even if you're learning it some of the way in, digging in isn't going to help. Right? If you've, if you've done all the things that you can, then you want to be. We really want to be filtering for. A healthier culture and a culture of innovation. It's it is so easy for leaders, nonprofit leaders, to do really simple, low lift things, right? Like having, you know, at the Why we used to have um, monthly, like sort of open community brainstorms. I ran them with our um, marketing director and we just shook it up every month. Like we did totally different, fun kind of brainstorming sessions. And we opened it up, like 50, 60 people would come to them and we would have them sit at round tables. You know, one exercise that we did was we would give them a collection of completely random words and they would have to think of a program based on those words. And it just led to like such blossoming of their imaginations and thinking outside of their day jobs. And it doesn't cost a penny, and it doesn't take that much of anybody's day. So it's not that, that leaders need to invest so much in creating a healthy culture where people feel like, oh, this I really had fun. Like, this hour went by really fast, and I'm using my imagination, and it doesn't matter what my role is, right? Because I just got tapped with with idea generation. Like, that little – those are signals, right? Those are signals that leadership sends saying – we want to create an environment where healthy ideas are heard, where ideas are heard and can thrive and your voice feels valued. And and and, and if somebody's not doing even that low-hanging fruit, like, they don't deserve you. Yeah. Well, I was going to note earlier that um, the culture where I work, my organization, they they are for innovation. They want to be, like, future-thinking. They want to be, like, the thought leader. But they're afraid of technology, and I feel like, people from the old power because they don't understand technology, they don't understand like these networking tools that they must learn and they see that as, like in my opinion, I, they see that as it's a waste of their time. So they just scrap that, move on, see what works, see what was tried and true. And I think that's also what
2: stagnates in non-profit organizations when they don't take the time to learn from their peers or
0: from from like their young, um, Employees, so I I noticed that, and it is a it is a cultural thing. Uh, But I feel like I I actually don't know. That's why I was going to ask Asha like, how do you instill change? I was going to add on to that and say there's a there's some sort of like discomfort with a lack of like things being concrete or being measurable. So I think like when things are a bit more just like a bit more ambiguous than people just get kind of like, you know, they step back they they just drop it all together. I've noticed that, yeah, where I work too. So in theory it sounds, you know, they want to be forward thinking, they want to be, you know, they want to be like with trend, but then as soon as things, you know, you can't measure it or you can't, you know, quantify it and see it, then they just like back home. Mm -hmm. I agree.
1: Yeah. Amen. I think think everything you said is so completely right. I was in a meeting with a funder recently and I was like going, you know, going on and on about like global generosity and, you know, democratic values and all this stuff. And the funder was like, I'm really interested in what I think is giving Tuesday's biggest accomplishment, which is that it's forced nonprofits to think about technology. And I was like, okay, like you can give me money for anything you want. <laughs> but, but I think that was absolutely right. Like That, that, that is one of the, the basic things, and that nonprofits really are, do tend to lag way behind when it comes to thinking about technology. And then when they do think about technology, they think about... Slapping a Twitter account on top of everything. They're already doing and not right. actually changing any of their strategies or any of their engagement practices And so the technology just is and then they're like why didn't I make a bunch of money or what you know Why isn't this work? Why don't I have a million followers or, right because it's not about you know, kind of hiring a social media director and And opening a few accounts uh, and being strategic. Oh my god. Yeah, um, it's really about like changing entire Entire mindsets, entire outlooks. And I'm gonna give you a really straightforward answer to how you create change, and it's a kind of a depressing answer and also a challenging one. You become a CEO. You make all the decisions. <laughs> that's why I'm here. Right, right. Because, no, seriously, because the, the truth is that old power is still a force and that those who are in the top positions make the decisions. It's just the sad fact, and there's no way that that's gonna go out of style anytime soon. And so you be a CEO. And then, and then they'll, everybody will just have to do what you said. <laughs> <laughs>
0: just tagging on to that, what do you have any advice for us as younger professionals trying to move towards that management
1: um, position? And, you know, again, like, yeah, that's, that's it. Or, or are there organizations that we should be looking at to, like yours, that are those models to either try and work or volunteer for learn from you could list? There are too few, for sure. Um, I would so, so I would just repeat the earlier advice about filtering for culture and skill building and your boss, rather than um, rather than issue. Um, but then I think the other issue is mentorship, the, the thing that can really be a, just a massive, massive game changer. Um, mentorship and sponsorship, right? The difference being that a mentor is someone who, um, a mentor is someone who guides you and who advises you who wants to make you better, right? A lot of people think that that has to be a hierarchical relationship, but it totally does not. It can be a peer mentor as well. I would say that the thing that makes you a mentor is that you sit in the place of being a mentor. That is the role that you're inhabiting, right? So I might sit with a mentee in my women's fellowship program, and she might be every bit as accomplishment or more so than I am. But in that role, I am, that's the role that I'm given. I am in service as her mentor. Maybe in another year, she'll be in service as my mentor. Or maybe we'll just be friends. But it's sort of how you sit down. So I get asked all the time, how do I find a mentor, right? How do I, how do I look up this famous CEO and say like, will you be my mentor? That never works, right? Because everybody's asking that person and, And to a large degree, a mentorship relationship is about kismet, where the best mentorship relationships just happen. But you can be really receptive and open to them. And you can also go to a peer and say, would you be interested in engaging each other as peer mentors for the next year? And that means you um, have a a sort of... um, Virtual NDA, right? You're, you're in a, a circle of trust, right? You, you're allowed to vent to each other, you're allowed to talk to each other really openly and you don't talk to anybody else about the things that you talk about. You edit each other's writing, right? You send each other um, angry emails before you hit send on them, right? <laughs> so that the person can be like, don't send that, it's not gonna be at all productive, right? So having somebody like that is is, is really, really crucial and I've had many, many people like that in my, in my working life but always because I was humble enough to ask. I think you kind of answered my question, my question was going to be, so what if you decide to kind of subvert from ways and do things secretly without really checking in first? <laughs> How do you find those? Those people who are willing to like look at what you do and
2: say yeah yeah yeah
1: <laughs> I mean that, that part is key right yeah. whether it's a board member or just one kind of senior more senior employee um, getting somebody who at least is going to agree to look the other way okay. while you do that kind of thing is, is and you have the best sense of that right are you working somewhere where you really don't have a lot of trust in anybody who's senior to you then it's probably not going to work another thing that you can think about doing rather than the sort of going rogue and just doing things on the on the down low is in starting something that will actually improve the organization but also put you in a leadership role, right? So starting a So a lot of people have started Ben Franklin Circles, for example, in their work environments because they're totally neutral. They can be religious, they can be secular, they can be political or not political. They're really just very, very values-based and very um, civic participation-based. So they'll start them in their organizations and they're putting themselves in the role of a leader. They're like, they're convening each other, they're building a name for themselves. You know, leadership loves that kind of thing because it doesn't cost them any money and they can look at it as talent retention. Right. People are more likely to stay at a job where they feel like some part of their soul is being fed and they're not just clocking in and clocking out and pressing F5 over and over in those, in the intervening hours. And so doing something meaningful that opens up like a whole new sort of um, area of conversation with people that you work with can be a a great way to just just add some value to your own day, but also to to put something really
2: impressive on your resume. Great. Okay. One quick last question. So...
1: More specifically, the focus nonprofit that I'm uh, focusing on is
0: funding uh, for pediatric cancer. Struggling with the kind of uh, on-ramp tactics for engaging Gen Z.
1: Oh, you know, I'll add something that i learned recently, some research on um, different age groups that I thought was really interesting. Um, Gen Z is going to present a whole new host of opportunities and challenges for those of us who are trying to raise money or um, get support for our causes. They just think about causes completely differently. And um, the, the research, I, I knew that, I have a general Zer myself. Um, but the research that was really interesting to me and made total sense is that millennials were about, especially the younger sort of end of millennial, millennial generation, were about growing as big a social network as they possibly could, getting as many followers, getting as many likes, right? having as big a network as they could. Gen Z has swung the other direction, and they're much more likely to have very small, intimate, closed groups. So small Snapchat groups, Instagram chats, um, text message chats, right? So our part of our thinking, I think, has to keep up with the way that those folks are engaging, they're a massive generation, they have a lot of potential to make a big difference, but again, how are we engaging them? How are we thinking about the ways that they're thinking about their own networks? The research said, you know, you're basically dealing with people who are, are gonna be influenced largely by four to seven people. Right, and nobody influences others more than their own social network, right? That, and
2: that's another new power phenomenon. And your findings, uh, you had mentioned that out of, of this network, people that it was like the the starlings analogy was seven people exactly that's another reason I found the starling thing
1: so such an amazing interesting parallel seven birds yeah it's just incredible
2: (laughs) it's incredible well and Gen Z too uh, that behavioral shift um, so much of it is uh, a belief in fairness there's a. It's not so much uh, what millennials or baby boomers or everybody in between would think, but one of the biggest values is around fairness, fair and justice, uh, access. And I
1: think I think they're less inclined
2: to think about
1: donations as the way you make a difference. I have to say that, like, they are. Desperate for impact and participation. They are largely concerned with justice and fairness, but they don't necessarily feel like um, Right, you know clicking a donate button is going to be the maximum way that they can affect change They and, and why would they right they see real change being affected by movements right they see you know gun legislation being changed because of never again They see men being toppled because of me too and none of these things involve donations Right? Absolutely. They, in some, many instances, they're completely disintermediated. There's, nonprofits are playing no role in them at all, but justice is being done. Things are changing. So I guess a question for nonprofits becomes, you, you can't engage with this generation the same way that you've engaged with other generations. You have to see that sort of holistic picture of how they want to participate and then give them opportunities to move up the participation scale.
2: Well, on that note, and on behalf of the Columbia University Nonprofit Management Program and all of these wonderful students we have in this class, uh, we're very honored to have had you tonight, Asha, thank, thank you for it was so a much pleasure. for your inspiration as Thanks. always.